AI's been around. It's like the internet in 2007. It's been around for a while. We've had Siri on our phones for a long time. In our house, we've had, we use the, the Hey Googles. We're not an Alexa family, we're a Hey Google family. But we have Hey Googles everywhere and we've had them for six years now, seven years now maybe. Roku has voice activated stuff. There's the Alexas obviously, they've, they've been around forever. We have AI, AI exists. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, what is up this week? What is up this week? Well, stocks are up this week. Growth stocks are up this week. Tech stocks are up this week, and I think that continues. February was no bueno, but I think March is going to be muy bueno. So let's let's go figure that out and let's chit chat about um, a little thing called artificial intelligence today, shall we? All right. Looking forward to seeing the muy bueno in just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, automation, clean energy, artificial intelligence, EVs, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. Uh-oh. All right, Luke, I know that this is a big week for you because you are hosting your first ever AI Super Summit, Super Summit event this Thursday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I know you've been immersed in all things AI over the past week. So I have a lot of AI-related questions for you this week. But first, can you quickly tell us a little bit about this Super Summit? Right, yeah. So um, AI obviously is the tech theme of the year or probably the tech theme of the decade. Uh, biggest technological paradigm shift since the internet and before that since the television, radio, before that since the automobile. Uh, so we're talking about a once every few decades type of transition here. Big, 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 big time stuff. So what we're doing in anticipation of this big, big, big time transition is hosting an event where I'm going to be sitting down with my colleague, uh, macro investing specialist, Eric Fry, and we're going to talk about all things AI. We're talking about what AI is, uh, why it matters to you, how it's going to impact society and what sectors it's going to have the biggest impact. And perhaps most importantly, what AI stocks to buy right now. We even mentioned a few names in, in that event. So um, it, it's an event I'm really excited for. Uh, you know, there's, we do quite a few events uh, throughout the year, but this one feels special to me because it covers a topic that um, I think everybody, it, this is not like it'd be nice to know information. I really believe this is need to know stuff. Like I said, back when the internet first came around in the early 2000s, a lot of people treated it as nice to know. But it was need to know stuff. The people that did know it, figured it out, ended up creating a 20, 30 year advantage over the people that didn't. And they made a lot of money while those that kind of sat on the sidelines either didn't make a lot of money or worse, lost a lot of money. People, you know, companies like Blockbuster, Sears, JCPenney, Radio Shack, so on and so forth. So I think we're at that moment today with AI. So this is not want to know, nice to know stuff. This is need to know stuff. And the people that will figure it out, that do figure it out, that go on to make a lot of money in the next 20 years are going to be the people that, that figure out, you know, how to use AI today. 
and continue to use it for the next couple of decades. So um, that's what the AI Super Summit is all about, giving people a front row seat into how to use AI to the best of your abilities to make the most of it and prosper in this coming age of AI. Gotcha. Now, understanding that you're probably going to go into a lot of things on, at the Super Summit, I don't. I know you can't give us everything, but I definitely have a few questions that I do hope you can answer about AI. Right. Uh, specifically, I've been reading a lot about uh, in your research notes recently, and you've taken a deep as you've taken this deep dive into the world of AI. Uh, I like to walk through some of that research uh, with our viewers, starting with the big question again: Why now? I think everyone knows about AI, and pretty much everyone can agree it's it is a big thing. Um, but why is it happening now, and why should investors start buying AI stocks now? Yeah, so I think we've covered this before in this podcast briefly. And that, you know, the reason here is AI just had what I'm calling and actually others have called its iPhone moment. So when you think about the emergence of the internet, that, that's, that's the parallel that I'm going to continue to draw throughout this conversation. It's a parallel that I think holds the most weight is the emergence of AI in the 2020s and 2030s uh, will be similar to the emergence of the internet in the 2000s and 2010s. Now, importantly, the internet didn't start in the 2000s, right? It's the World Wide Web launched in the early 1990s. I think it was 1993 or was it? It was either late 93 or late 92. I forget. That's when the World Wide Web was, was officially launched to the public. But anyways, the internet launched in the 90s, but it didn't really create empires, business empires, and change every facet of our daily lives until the 2000s and 2010s. And that's because of accessibility. In the 1990s, yes, we all had computers. And as we got into the early 2000s, we all had computers and we had the massive dot-com boom and bust on Wall Street. Everybody was aware of the internet. We knew what it did. We had access to it. But it wasn't really seamless, mobile, 24-7 access. We had computers, specifically desktop computers. Very few people had laptops. We had big desktop computers that sat on our desk in our offices, that sat in computer labs in schools, and or that sat at you know your home desk office. And it sat there and it lived there and it didn't move from there. So you were really only plugged into the internet. I mean, it depends. If you use it at work, you were plugged into it for six, seven hours a day, but just exclusively through work. If you didn't use it for work, you were plugged into it, what, maybe an hour a day when you got home? If you had one at home, if you didn't, you plugged into it, what, an hour every week or so if you went to the, the local library that had one, right? So we were really plugged into the internet on a 24-7 constant dynamic basis. It was something we kind of went to every once in a while. And so we were every once in a while reminded of its applications, of its uses, of its benefits. But then Steve Jobs launched the iPhone in 2007. And yes, it wasn't the first smartphone, but it was the first smartphone that everybody fell in love with and was impressed by and wanted to get their hands on and did get their hands on. What that did is it made the internet, it took the internet from this static thing that we had access to a few hours a day or a few hours a week to a ubiquity 
that we all had access to every single minute of every single hour of every single day through these little puppies, right? We put the entire power of the internet from a static computer at my home to this. That is, that, that is a fundamental shift. And because of that fundamental shift, everybody started to play with the internet more. They started to learn about the internet more. They started to figure out how this thing called the internet could dramatically improve and change their lives. It was after the iPhone launch that Facebook became a super big platform. Yes, Facebook launched in 2004, but it didn't really grow to hundreds of millions of users till the 2010s after we all got iPhones. And if you remember, Facebook's IPO in 2012 was a complete bust. It was terrible. Stock IPO'd at 38. I think it went down as low as like 15 or $14, maybe even 12 bucks. It was a complete disaster until they figured out how to advertise mobily. Mobile completely changed the dynamics of that business and it took it from an IPO bus to a multi-hundred billion dollar empire. Amazon, yes, it grew in the 2000s, but it didn't become a multi-trillion dollar ubiquity until the 2010s when we started ordering everything just off a click of, our, a, click of a button on our phones. Alphabet, big search company, Google, big search company in the 2000s, of course. But once we started being able to, I got a question, you know, what's the weather going to be like? And just type it on our phone, boom, 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 boom. That's when they started to really monetize. That's when they started to really create the empire. This device changed the internet revolution. It made the internet revolution. It took it from this kind of slow and steady leg one growth to this exponential hockey stick leg two growth. That's what this did. The fortunes were made in the internet revolution, not really in the 1990s and not really in the early 2000s, but rather after the iPhone launch in 2008, 2009, 2010, and throughout the 2010s into 2020. That's when the fortunes were made. That's when most of the economic value creation happened at Amazon, at Microsoft, at Alphabet, at Facebook, Meta, at NVIDIA, at all of these companies. That's when the internet revolution really got underway. And it was all because of accessibility created by the iPhone. That's where we are today with the AI revolution. AI's been around. It's like the internet in 2007. It's been around for a while. We've had Siri on our phones for a long time. In our house, we've had, we use the, the Hey Googles. We're not an Alexa family. We're a Hey Google family. But we have Hey Googles everywhere. And we've had them for six years now, seven years now, maybe. Roku has voice activated stuff. There's the Alexas, obviously. They, they've been around forever. We have AI. AI exists. And Spotify has been recommending me songs for seven, eight years. Netflix has been recommending me movies for seven, eight years. AI has been around for a long time. But like the internet in the early 2000s, when we just had these big static computers, it was something I just tapped into every once in a while. Hey, Google, uh, play, you know, the Beatles. Uh, hey, Siri, what's the weather going to be like uh, in San Francisco this weekend? You know, it's something we just tap into every once in a while. But what ChatGPT did is it created a point of accessibility that now everybody is like, oh, wait. I can now get on my mobile device or my computer or wherever I go that has internet connection and I can talk with this AI, this chatbot that's going to give me 
very smart and articulate answers to pretty much any general knowledge question I have. Wow. It's accessible. I have access to sophisticated AI for the first time in my life. That's why the world's gone crazy for it. That's why 100 million people, more than 100 million people are on the platform every single month. That's why we're obsessed with it. And this obsession is what creates the iPhone moment. Because now everyone's like, oh, this is AI. This is, this is what AI is supposed to be. What can I do with it? How can I learn from it? How can I use it? And now not only are people thinking that, but companies are too. After ChatGPT launched, Google launched its own competitor. Baidu said it's going to launch its own competitor. Alibaba said it's going to launch its own competitor. Lots of smaller companies like Yex say they're going to launch or have already launched their own AI chatbots. Tesla is calling themselves a massive AI company. NVIDIA used the word or the term AI, I think, like a hundred times in their <laughs> conference call. Like everybody's thinking about how can we use AI now to the most benefits possible. That's where people were in the early 2010s. Once they realized, oh, this iPhone thing, it's going to put the internet in everybody's hands. Let's figure out how to create empires off that. That's where we are with the AI revolution today. Oh, this chat GPT thing, everyone's starting to realize the power of AI. Let's figure out how we can create empires off of that. That's where we are. So that's the why now. That's why you should buy AI stocks now. Now, layer on top of that, that, hey, you also are coming off a, you know, 14 month bear market where stocks have been crushed. That was particularly hard on technology stocks like AI stocks. And so you not only have this massive upside catalyst fundamentally for AI companies, but you get to buy AI stocks at huge discounts coming off a massive crash. I mean, the stars are aligning, folks. It's like the perfect time to buy AI stocks and hold on to them for three, five, seven, ten years. And you will make you you stand the you give yourself the chance to make a ton of money over that time frame. So why now? Because everything is coming together now. Chad GPT created the iPhone moment for AI, created a point of accessibility that is now going to allow AI to be a ubiquity, at which point we will then create empires. Not we, but corporate America will create empires off the back of AI technology. And that's what we have today. And you're going to see more and more of this over the next 12 months too. ChatGPT is just the tip of the iceberg. We're going to uncover a lot more to this story. There's going to be a lot more applications that are going to fundamentally change our lives starting this year. And that's going to get everybody excited and AI stocks are going to start soaring. So that is, Aaron, why now? <laughs> All right. Um, so question off of that. And again, I do not disagree that, you know, ChatGPT was this, again, as you describe it, this point of access of accessibility moment. Uh, again, people are talking about AI all across the media. I think uh, mm -hmm. John Oliver even did a bit over it over the weekend this past Sunday on his show. Um, my question is, is that everybody's talking about it right now, similar to, you know, your iPhone analogy, it still took a while for the iPhone to become as commonplace as it is now. And that had a lot to do with the adoption of people using iPhone. So my question is, how important is the uh, cultural perspective, the cultural adoption of AI as we move forward? Uh, right. And see that, the, yeah, no, that's yeah, that's exactly where we can, again, we can draw parallels to the internet revolution. Um, iPhone wasn't the first smartphone. It was the first culturally relevant and cool smartphone. It was the first smartphone that was a cultural phenomenon. 
right? BlackBerry was around before iPhone. And I remember my dad had a BlackBerry and I used to play Brick Breaker on it. I don't know if you ever had a BlackBerry and they had like those little games. Brick Breaker was a game <laughs> on it. It's a lot of fun. It was a terrible device, but Brick Breaker was a lot of fun. I miss Brick Breaker. But like Blackberries were around. They weren't cool though. They weren't a cultural phenomenon. Not every, you know, Sam, Dick, and Harry wanted to get their hands on one. Not every high school kid was obsessed with it. But they were with the iPhone. The iPhone took the smartphone and made it a cultural phenomenon. You need something to become a cultural phenomenon before it becomes ubiquity. Because if it's not a cultural phenomenon, if the adoption demand is not there, then adoption is not going to happen. You need adoption demand. And that's what ChatGPT has cultivated. You had all these other AIs around, like I said, Siri, Alexa, a lot of you do. Like they've been around for a while, but it's not like, oh, I need an Alexa in my home. Oh, I need a Hey Google in my home. Oh, I use Siri all the time. I've had an iPhone for over 10 years. I probably use Siri 10 times in those 10 years. Like I, people don't, there's, there's not a real need for it. It's not cool. ChatGPT is cool. ChatGPT, everyone's like, oh my goodness, like this is really awesome stuff. How can I use this? It's becoming a cultural phenomenon. In the tech circles, everyone's like, ChatGPT, 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 right? It's a cultural phenomenon like the iPhone in 07. So to your point, which is an excellent point, you need to have that cultural phenomenon status in order to become the ubiquity necessary to drive the AI revolution into this next phase of exponential growth. And that's, that's what we have. And that's why we're so excited about what ChatGPT is. ChatGPT honestly could be horrible at what it, what it is. It's not. It's a very good AI, but it could be horrible. So long as it has that cultural phenomenon status and everybody wants it, that's really all that matters. The first iPhone was awesome, but by today's standard, it sucks. Extrapolating <laughs> that out to, to ChatGPT, ChatGPT today, we all think it's awesome. In seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years, we're going to look back at it and say, God, that was a really stupid AI. But ChatGPT 10, <laughs> ChatGPT 11 is going to be absurd, absurdly smart and absurdly good. So that, you know, that, that's where we are with this revolution. The cultural phenomenon status is, has been achieved. And now it's kind of uh, entering escape velocity, if you will, for the revolution. And I think that you're going to get a lot of investment dollars into the space, a lot of talent into the space, a lot of development, a lot of progress, a lot of applications. And it's just, it's boom time for that's that's how I view the industry. Okay, and I think uh, one of the things that we've talked about before, and you've hinted in your research notes, is that this is this is the first domino to fall, um, but it's just the first, and it's probably what you've described as the smallest domino too. Uh, right. That is the competency and the accessibility of AI is going to significantly improve over the next five to 10 years. And it seems that you're very, very confident in this claim. Can you mm -hmm. discuss why you feel that this is just the tip of the iceberg. Right. So, I mean, that, that goes back to what I just said about how ChatGPT1, we think it's absurdly smart today. In 10 years, when they launch ChatGPT10 or ChatGPTX, whatever the heck they're going to call it at that time, um, it's going to make today's ChatGPT look like a silly little toddler that doesn't know left from right. AI models are going to get infinitely smarter and infinitely cheaper over the next 10 years, over the next 12 months, over the next 36 months, over the next five years, seven years, 10 years, over any time frame, these models are going to get significantly cheaper and significantly better. On the better front, the reason it's going to get better is the data creation. 
right? AI models are all about data. The abundance and quality of data determines the quality of the model. The more data you have, the higher quality data you have, the more dynamic data you have, the more diverse data you have, the better the model is going to get because what AI models do is they take training data sets, they learn from them, they learn about every encounter that data set has had in the past as long as the data has been around, and then it emulates that behavior for future scenarios. So it'll be able to look at a data set, let's say it's predicting stocks, look at a data set and say, okay, when inflation is doing this and rates are doing that and thrust signals are like this, then stocks have a tendency to do this. Now we're looking at you know, the current situation where you get the exact same signals firing, so stocks are probably gonna do this. That's sort of how an AI brain works. So the more data you have on its training set, the more scenarios it's going to learn about, the better prepared it's going to be for encountering future scenarios. That's AI. Well, right now we are getting an abundance of data creation and the volume of data creation is only going to accelerate in the coming years. So I pulled up some numbers right here on my screen. Today, in the world today, every single minute, 98,000 tweets are sent. 650,000 updates are posted on Facebook or Instagram. 11 million instant messages are sent, so texts or on Messenger or something like that. Nearly 700,000 Google searches, searches are queried, and about 168 emails, 168 million emails are drafted. That's every minute. Every minute, 98,000 tweets. 650,000 social media updates, 11 million instant messages, 700,000 Google search queries, and 168 million emails every single freaking minute. That is data. That is data creation. And it's not just happening in the digital world. In the physical world, we're throwing sensors on everything, starting with our Apple Watches, our smartphones, our smart cars. They're tracking our health data, our fitness data, our transportation data, our, our, our mobility data. Uh, look at now, you look at big physical operations like uh, drilling, um, drilling wells or even like a construction site. They're now throwing sensors on all of their equipment to produce data to monitor the health of those machines. So now you're getting data on all those things. Uh, smart buildings are becoming a thing as well. Smart windows, smart doors, all they're all producing data. Everything is starting to produce data. And we're just scratching the surface of throwing sensors on things. So as more and more sensors appear on every single thing in this world, then every single thing in this world is going to become a data producing device, which means the abundance and volume of data creation and speed of that data creation over the next three, five, 10 years is going to absolutely soar. Some other numbers that I pulled up here, the amount of data creation uh, in 2020 was 47 zettabytes of data. A zettabyte is 1 billion terabytes. It's, it's, it's a lot of data. So the world produced 47 zettabytes of data in 2020. By 2035, that number is going to grow to 2,142 zettabytes of data. So we're at 47 today. And in 15 years, we're going to be at 2,142. That is 45 times growth over the next 15 years. 45 times growth. The amount and volume and speed of data creation is going to rise exponentially in the coming years, which means the volume, abundance, and speed of data that AI models have access to is also going to increase by 45 times.
And presumably that means these models will get 45 times smarter. They're going to get 45 times better. So there is no doubt in my mind that as we start throwing sensors on every single thing that moves or even exists in this world, we are going to start producing a ton of data and that data is going to be used to create infinitely smarter AI models and systems over the next 5, 10, 15 years. This is the start of a massive AI capability boom. Now, on the other side of that, because good AI is worthless unless it's cheap AI. Of course, you could have these massive supercomputers in the 70s and 80s that did a lot of cool stuff, but it wasn't until we made computers cheap enough to, to for consumers to buy and put in their homes that the internet really started to change the world, and even better yet, cheap enough to put in their hands that it really changed the world. Well, of course, AI, we're going to need AI to become cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And it is. The learning cost or the training cost of AI models is decreasing exponentially, and that's because they benefit from two things. They're built on computers, right? AI models are built on top of computers. And because they're built on top of computers, they benefit from two things. Moore's law, which means that the number of chips on a semiconductor or a number of resistors on a semiconductor chip double uh, every single, every two years. That is the first law. So you get more and more and more and more and more and more and more, more. Then you get Wright's law, which is that the cost of production of an item, the unit cost production of an item decreases at a fixed percentage for every cumulative doubling of production capacity. So as you make more and more and more and more and more of these models, then you're going to decrease the cost by a certain fixed percentage. And the learning cost over the past um, several years have declined exponentially. And so you're probably going to get continued exponential declines in the cost of AI training. So you get exponentially better, faster, smarter AI models with exponentially cheaper AI models. And that's how you make AI ubiquity. So yes, Going back to that domino example, a domino <laughs> analogy. This is, you know, I, I, you probably see it in some movies. Like there's that tiny little domino that falls, right? And then all of a sudden it like knocks down a series of dominoes, but each domino gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until the final domino is like this elephant-sized domino. That boom, <laughs> it just hits the ground hard. That That's what's going on right now. Chad GPT, someone just flipped over this tiny little domino. Which if, if you're just looking with blinders on that tiny little domino, all you're seeing is a tiny little domino that fell over and you're like, so what? But if you remove your blinders and see the big picture, then you understand that them flicking over, OpenAI, Microsoft, flicking over that tiny little domino called ChatGPT is now going to knock over a bigger domino, which is going to knock over a bigger domino and a bigger domino and a bigger domino. And it's going to continue and cascade into an enormous revolution that's going to forever change the world. And that is why I hope it's coming across in, in my voice today. <laughs> I am not sleeping at all because I just had a newborn baby, yet I have enough energy to go through it because I'm so excited about it. I am very, very, very enthusiastic about what's coming with artificial intelligence over the next three, five, and 10 years. Now, there are a lot of estimates out there about how big the AI market will be. Uh, some of those estimates go as high as $15 trillion. Uh, how big do you think that the so-called AI economy will be by 2030 based on you know, the excitement that you just described and where you see the dominoes falling? Yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's tough to put a number on it. 15 trillion is a number that a lot of people are landing on. Um, some people are at 20, 25 trillion, but I mean, the, the numbers range from 15 to 40 trillion that I've seen out there. That would make it as big as, nearly as big as the U.S. economy to twice as big as the U.S. economy. Um, I think it's probably going to be bigger in the long term. And the reason being is, AI is going to change every single, every industry is going to have to use AI. It's, it's adapt or die. 
Like that's that's kind of how it's it's going to work. So I think retail is going to use AI in a tremendous manner from everything from product creation. So let me, let's just walk through the example. If I'm like Abercrombie and Fitch or something, or I'm uh, American Eagle, or I'm you know one of these like teenage retail brands, it's very competitive. Fashion trends change all the time. I'm relying on designers to tell me what is the fashion trend. Designers are sometimes right, sometimes wrong. Um, why not use AI, which is going to digest all of the social data on the internet, see what people are talking about, pull out keywords, and that will inform my decision of what types of clothes to create. So I'm gonna use AI to create clothes. Social media AI goes through, scrapes the internet, learns what people are talking about, what's relevant, what's not relevant, feeds that back to me, gives me suggestions as to what the coming style over the next three months is going to be, the winter style, the summer style, the spring style, whatever it may be. I use that to create a certain line of clothes for this upcoming season. Then I also use AI to, okay, this social media, or this mention is most relevant in this area of the United States. This one's most popular in the Midwest. This one's most popular in Southern California. And then I can send different product distribution out to these stores based on what the distribution of mention is or what the distribution of, of, of sentiment is based on what the AI is telling me. And then once they're in the stores, I can use AI to track sales velocity to tell me, okay, this thing's working, this thing's not working. We need to do adjustments here. We need to take product that's here, move it over into the Chicago store, take that Chicago store product, move it into the Seattle store, something to that extent. So just in that one simple example, we're talking about AI being used from everything from product creation to actual product fulfillment, right? Then you can use AI for logistics when they order online and stuff because you can use AI to optimize delivery and a lot of logistics companies are using AI already. So from every, every facet of a retailer's operations is going to be impacted by AI. That's going to be true for every single company in the world. So from that perspective, what's the size of the global economy? about a hundred trillion dollars. Why can't AI be that big? I think it can be. I really think it can be. I think that, that AI at scale in the long run, if you want to put a long, long-term moonshot target on it, the, the size of the AI economy will equal the size of the global economy. That's, that's truly how I look at this opportunity. It's, it's enormous. All right. Wow. Okay. Um, moving along into uh, something we've talked about before. Uh, we've talked about and defined the difference between uh, narrow AI and general AI on this podcast mm -hmm. already. General AI being the cultural idea that people think of when they hear the term AI, Jarvis from Iron Man, uh, an AI system that can do everything. And again, we've talked about narrow AI, systems designed to focus on a singular task from a very specific mm -hmm. data. Um, you've discussed about how knowing the difference between the two could mean the difference for investors striking fortunes in the AI revolution or striking out. Mm -hmm. uh, so my question is less about the definition of these two types of AI and more, why is the distinction between the two so important when it comes to investment strategies? Because general AI is bogus fantasy land dreams and narrow AI is the real deal. So you have to know the distinction because, well, here, here's the thing. As you just said, general AI is, is this 
the AI that we all think about when we think of AI, because it's what science fiction movies portray. It's, it's Jarvis and Iron Man, it's HAL 9000 and 2001 in Space Odyssey. It, it's the AI that is this all-power, omnipotent being that can do everything, omniscient being that can do everything, or entity that can do everything, um, and know everything, and make decisions based on anything. Um, because it's what we think of, it's what a lot of companies are going to try to sell, right? It, the, the way the AI industry is going to work, which is the same with every technological megatrend, is it's going to consolidate over time. Whenever any new hot tech comes to market, you get hundreds upon hundreds of startups trying to create the world-class version of that technology to change the world. Five, 10 years down the road, 99% of those companies are bankrupt. Only five or six are left that are actually changing the world. So technological megatrends consolidate over time. It's like a giant cone. And we're at the base of the cone right now, and we're going to filter down into the top of the cone. So we're going to start right now over the next 12 months, 24, 36 months. I can promise you every single company on Wall Street is going to act like they're an AI company. Every <laughs> single startup is going to act like they're an AI startup. And you're going to get everybody and their best friend and their mother trying to start an AI firm. You are going to have no shortage of AI companies, AI investment opportunities to choose from because everybody's going to act like they're one. Hundreds, hundreds, even thousands of AI investment opportunities here at the beginning of the AI revolution. But you know, because you're smart, that at the end of the day, only one out of every 100 or 500, 1%, 0.1% of these companies are going to make it through. So how do you distinguish? How do you distinguish between the 99.9% .9 of AI stuff that's out there that's all hype and the 0.1% that is substance, that is actually going to change the world? And I think one of the best ways to tell that difference is by understanding narrow AI versus general AI. Because I believe in this world of hundreds and thousands of AI startups and investment opportunities, 99% of them are going to say they're building some form of general AI because they don't know what they're talking about. 99% of those, those companies don't know what they're talking about, but they're going to try and capitalize on the cultural phenomenon aspect of it, which is, oh, we're creating Jarvis. Oh, we're creating HAL 9000. Oh, we're creating this Iron Man stuff, right? It's like, that's what they're going to try to capitalize on because investors who don't know better either and be like, oh yeah, let's build it. That sounds super cool. And then it's going to be a bunch of money thrown into this and then boom, nothing, <laughs> no results. All the AI experts I talk to, and I know quite a few people in this industry that are, that are very, very smart. Um... None of them believe that general AI will be a thing within the next 10 years. Uh, and many of them believe it won't be a thing within our lifetimes. So general AI is just, it, it's a complex science. It's something that is very hard to create, something we likely won't create anytime soon. But narrow AI is here and ready to change the world. Narrow AI is chat GPT. Narrow AI is robotics automation in, in a warehouse, is robotics automation in the kitchen. Narrow AI is, is self-driving cars. That, that's narrow AI. It's AI defined to do a very specific task based on a very specific set of data and it stays within its domain of expertise. Companies that understand that and that are developing world-class narrow AI to do one thing very efficiently those are the companies you want to invest in. Those are the AI stocks you want to buy. Not some company that says, oh, we're building this AI that's going to do everything. The do everything AIs are the runaway from AIs, okay? If you hear a company make the pitch, we're building general AI. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be it's going to change everything. It's going to be able to do everything for us. You need to look at that and then go the other way 
and run because <laughs> that is not what you want to invest in. You want to find a company that is narrow and focused in this space. They understand that general AI is not going to be a thing, but that narrow AI is, narrow AI is a thing and they can get the data to train a narrow AI to do one thing exceptionally well. That is what's going to get adopted ubiquitously over the next three, five, 10 years. Because it's, a company's going to have an AI to do marketing, an AI to do um, copywriting or you know, article writing or content generation, an AI to make music or make videos, an AI to decide human capital management uh, decisions, an AI to do um, all payroll. And AI to do, AI to do all sorts of different things, logistics. Inter the enterprise in ten years is going to have a full AI stack with seven to fifteen to twenty different narrow AIs doing very specific things. It's not going to be one general AI running the enterprise. That's not going to be a thing. So what we're looking for, we're investing in narrow, and we're investing in AI, are the companies that are developing narrow AI that are going to make it into that stack. Okay. So that's why it's important to difference between narrow AI and general AI. A lot of people are getting hyped up about AI right now, and they're just going to buy companies that sound like they're building the coolest AI technology. No, buy companies that are developing very specific, narrow AI technology to do one thing or two or three things exceptionally well and forget everything else. That's what you want to buy. Focused, focused, focused. That's why I call narrow AI focused AI. Because I think it's kind of general, narrow. Narrow kind of has a negative connotation. You think of narrow, it's not a very positive word, but narrow AI should be a pot should have positive thoughts when it comes to your mind. So I don't like to call it narrow AI. I like to call it focused AI. It's focused on doing one thing exceptionally well. It's kind of like it's kind of like a basketball team. Like <laughs> for you to get to a sports analogy but yeah yes, go we're, on. We're a sports analogy. It's, it's like a basketball team like there, there used to be the era of you know the renaissance man or the all-around basketball player a guy who's seven out of ten on everything he's seven at shooting jumpers he, he's seven down in the pain he's seven at the free throw line he's seven at defense and that's cool but it's not what wins championships what wins championships is the team of specialists i want a bullseye three-point shooter I want a world class, best in best in class, you know, floor general, playmaker, assist guy. I want a top notch defender to shut down the other player's top guy. I want the, the the strongest rebounder, paint defender. I want a scrappy guy, ten out of ten, just the hustle and grit. You build a team around specialists, and you create a winning recipe. That's how enterprises are going to create themselves or redefine themselves in the 2020s. They're going to create a team of AI specialists, AI to do this, AI to do that, AI to do this. And that's how they're going to win. So narrow AI versus general AI. Forget the Renaissance man, seven out of tens at everything. Buy the stuff that's building 10 out of 10 on a very specific thing. Focus AI. That's what I like to do. Okay. So now that we've taken this pretty deep dive into understanding what AI is, let's talk about a few of the direct investment opportunities in AI. Right. Uh, specifically, where do you see uh, focused AI, as you call it, having the biggest impact in the short term, say the next 12 to 36 months? How do you find that 1% that's going to be focused in from those hundreds and hundreds of, if not thousands of AI companies that are going to emerge as a result of this AI revolution? Right. So a few things that, that I'm definitely looking for. I mean, I, I think first and foremost, the most important thing here is the team. 
that we are at such an early stage of the industry, a lot is going to develop and change over the next 12 months, 24 months, 36 months, five years, 10 years. This is going to be a rapidly evolving landscape. If you don't have a good team to navigate through that rapidly evolving landscape, you're not going to make it. Amazon became, there were a lot of e-commerce operations in the late 90s and early 2000s. Amazon became Amazon because of Jeff Bezos and the team he surrounded himself with. That guy is a winner. He knows how to get stuff done. He understood the customer is king. He totally just established that DNA among the execs at Amazon, among the team at Amazon. And because of that, they were able to navigate through the ever-evolving landscape of e-commerce throughout the 2000s and 2010s and become the last man standing in that industry and become the dominant trillion-dollar empire that they are today. That was because of the team. Same with Alphabet. There were a lot of search engines back in the day. Alphabet was not the first. They weren't even the first (laughs) to figure out how to monetize search engines. But they had a fabulous team with innovative thinkers and creators that were able to navigate through the search landscape, outcompete everybody else, dominate the industry, create a trillion dollar empire. Same with Facebook. As much as you guys might want to hate Mark Zuckerberg, and I know a lot of people out there do hate Mark Zuckerberg, the fact of the matter is in his early days of 2004, 2015, the guy was an absolute genius at knowing what people wanted. And he built a team of people that knew how to monetize on people's demands and desires. So because of that, they were able to outcompete MySpace. They were able to outcompete Twitter, all these others. And even as the others are called Snapchat and and Pinterest and all these others, they still kind of like, okay, you guys are just nothing compared to us. And they have been nothing compared to them. So because of that management team, because of that leadership, they were able to navigate through the ever-evolving landscape of social media and become the multi-hundred billion dollar social media giant they are today. So the team is by far and away the most important thing when looking at and evaluating an AI stock or an AI investment opportunity. You have to find a great team, competent people that have strong engineering backgrounds, strong technology backgrounds, maybe even a history of uh, you know success in the business world before, either sold startups, had successful startups, something of that nature. Um, and also people that have big visions. This is going to be an industry that rewards big thinkers, big-minded people, not people that are you know, worried about the next step or get very risk-adverse. This is going to, you know, fortune favors the bold. And this is going to be an industry that plays out in a way that favors the ones that are the boldest. And so, you know, Jeff Bezos back in the day was as bold as he could possibly be and it paid off. And so I think you want to find bold thinkers and management teams. So I think the team is exceptionally important. The second thing to look at is the resources, okay? Because a team can only do as much as the resources enable it, as much as the company's resources enable the team to do. So you want to find companies that are well capitalized, backed by big firms that have the resources to invest in AI, grow their AI, and continue to develop strong AI. So you got to find big resources, got to find you know cash heavy balance sheets, not a lot of debt over there. Companies that have, you know, in case that balance, that cash balance does dwindle, have huge backers there. And that's why, you know, big tech looks super um, attractive here because, I mean, they don't have to worry about liquidity or cash anytime soon. They are cash generating machines. They have a lot of resources to pour into developing AI. Microsoft has billions it can pour into AI. Alphabet has billions it can pour into AI. Amazon has billions it can pour into AI. So these companies are probably going to develop really good AI. So management team, resources, 
And then preferably number three, you want to find a product and market that is working, that is validated by customer uh, satisfaction, customer reviews. So, you know, ChatGPT, obviously everybody loves it. You and I have used it. It's fabulous. Great product. That would be OpenAI would check all the boxes. The, the management team there is fantastic. The founders are really good. It's an innovative team. They got huge resources backed by Microsoft. $10 billion just came in and they have a great product and market. So check, 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 right? OpenAI, if it were a public, I'd say go ahead and buy that stock. Absolutely. Now, there are other stocks out there that also check all three boxes, but you want to find that third box is really important. You want to find a product in market that is working, that is validated by real world result, real world operations. And that's where a firm like Symbotic comes into play, right? We've talked about Symbotic before. That is AI applied to warehouse automation. There are a lot of warehouse automators out there, a lot of robotics companies out there. There's only one that has a massive contract with Walmart. There's only one that won, you know, the contract with Walmart, rolled it out into a couple of distribution centers and Walmart loved it so much, they went ahead and ordered it for all of its regional distribution centers in the United States. There's only one company that has that validation. That's Symbotic. Symbotic's founders, very smart people, very great management team. They have a history of success in this business. They know what they're doing. They have massive resources because they have a lot of cash in the balance sheet and because they got the Walmart order. They got Walmart's backing, basically. So that's a company that checks all three boxes for an AI stock to buy. Really like what's going on there. So you got to go through that checklist. Team, resources, product. If we're checking all three, then I think that's a stock that you got to look really deeply into as a potential strong buy for, you know, the coming three, five, 10 year AI revolution. All right. Um, my last question when it comes to AI, uh, since uh, the, the, as you call it, the point of existence a point of accessibility point uh, of ChatGPT. We've had this uh, discussion before where uh, you equate uh, AI in investing that the investors who use AI are going to beat the investors who don't. Uh, my question to you is uh, with tools like ChatGPT becoming more known through media, have these tools uh, been incorporated into your research strategies? Like you've discussed how you may have wanted to incorporate it already or and be change your overall outlook on investment strategies as a whole. Yeah. So I, I think artificial intelligence is, I did, we got a segment in the two buckets here. Mm -hmm. There's two types of investing. There's long-term fundamental investing, and then there's short-term trading. I think AI is going to revolutionize, completely upend, and entirely change short-term trading. Because short-term trading is all about pattern recognition. It's all about looking at patterns in stocks or even in fundamentals, accelerating revenue growth, decelerating revenue growth, gross profit margin expansion, operating margin erosion, whatever it may be, free cash flow growth, accelerating free cash flow growth. Short-term trading is all about pattern recognition. And that's what AI is really good at <laughs> and a lot better than you at and a lot better than me at. So AI is going to revolutionize the entire short-term trading industry. I would be surprised if there were still successful human short-term traders around in seven years that aren't using AI. I think that entire industry is going to be driven by AI within the next five to 10 years. So I think it's going to completely change that. Long-term fundamental investing is not about pattern recognition. It's about human behavior observations. It's about me thinking, okay, I think a lot of humans are going to really like to interact with each other uh, through 
let's talk about extended reality. I think a lot of humans are going to enjoy immersing in alternate realities, extended reality type situations, because it's, it's simply the next generation of escapism. And as far as long as we, we've been around, humans have enjoyed escapism as part of their lives. At first it was escapism through, through radio broadcasts and it was escapism through, you know, two dimensional television. And then it was escapism through two dimensional video games. And now it's escapism through three dimensional video gaming and three dimensional uh, digital experiences. So I think this is simply the next evolution of human escapism. That's a very theoretical human behavior observation that requires things that an AI cannot do because it is not, there's not much certainty in that. I'm saying I believe these things will happen. I'm saying I think based on my interactions with other humans, based on what I'm seeing in the world, based on my understanding of history of, of human behavior, that the next generation of human behavior will look like this. The next evolution of human behavior and escapism will look like this. That's that's not an observation or a conclusion that AI will be able to come to because AI is all about pattern recognition and data. There's not a lot of data there. It's more just me kind of connecting dots and having some human touch to it. So I don't think AI is actually going to impact long-term fundamental investing all that much in the next three, five, 10 years. That's a general AI thing. I don't think mm. you can develop narrow AI or focused AI to dominate long-term fundamental investing. I don't think that's going to be a thing. So if I'm an investor today, what am I trying to do? Well, I'm trying to develop AI-powered strategies to boost my short-term gain to optimize my short-term gain. Okay, let's develop AI to, to do, do some trades, you know, one month in, one month out, three month in, three month out, boom, 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 here, there, here, there, here, there, here, there, here, there. That's what I'm trying to do, but I'm not changing my long-term gain. I, I don't think AI can do that yet. I don't think AI will be able to do that within the next, you know, five to 10 years. So again, that's a general AI stuff. So I'm developing AI strategies to boost a short-term game and sticking with my long-term game, sticking with my calls on AI, sticking with my calls on, uh, extended reality, stick with my calls on self-driving, stick with my calls on, on EV tolls, stick with my calls on that stuff. So I don't think that's stuff that AIs are going to be able to, to do at least right now, early stage VC tech investing. So that's how I'm preparing for AI to hit the financial world. Completely upend short-term trading, have a negligible impact on long-term investing, utilize it fully in short-term trading, utilize it where applicable in long-term uh, investing, though probably not applicable in many, many arenas where where ai can be used in long-term and fundamental investing in which we are already using is we use chat gpt to kind of learn about topics so we're, mm. we're investing in quantum computing we want to learn about quantum computing i find it much easier to learn about quantum computing in a conversational format such as having a conversation with chat gpt than reading you know research papers so that is one way i think people can use um AI to inform their long-term investment strategy, but I don't think the AI will make the long-term investment decisions for them, whereas AI will make short-term trading decisions. Okay. Um, great conversation around AI, um, but I definitely want to zoom out for a moment and take the scope off of AI, talk a bit about the macros because things are changing quickly over there. Uh, yep. Stocks, dropped again last week, but they're showing resilience this week. Uh, you're on record saying you think the worst of the sell-offs is over and that stocks will rebound in March. Uh, again, why do you think that? Yeah, so my bull thesis is, okay, disinflation is here. The Fed's going to pause pivot. 
and the economy is going to be stabilized and stocks are going to soar. But that is, that's my 2023 bull thesis. You know that our viewers know that, <laughs> but that's not a smooth process. Disinflation is never, ever, ever smooth. We've had 10 major disinflationary cycles since the 1920s, since 1920s, over the past 100 years of the U.S. economy. There have been 10 major disinflationary cycles. On average, in those disinflationary cycles, for every six months of disinflation, you get one month of reinflation. So a month wherein the CPI rate year over year actually goes up, say from 6.3% to 6.5%. That's a reinflation month. That's spooky, but it's natural because disinflation is never smooth. You take six steps forward and then one step back, six steps forward and then one step back. That's how disinflation operates because the economy, the real world is not linear. As, as, as the old saying goes, God doesn't create in straight lines. Well, the market doesn't work in straight lines either. Six <laughs> steps forward, one step back. Six steps forward, one step back. That's disinflation. Now, the really important thing to note is that in those 10 major disinflationary cycles, the steps back when we do, so sometimes we have one month of disinflation or reinflation. Sometimes you have two months. Sometimes you have three months, whatever it may be. It never actually broke the disinflation cycle. Never. Once disinflation really got started, and I'm, I'm defining a major disinflationary cycle as when CPI goes above 5% and then meaningfully pulls back by more than 100 basis points. So we go to 10% and then come to, come to 9%, or we go to 12% and come to 11%, or we go to 7% and come to 6%. Once that turn happens, so we go above 5% and then have 100 basis points turn in the opposite direction. That's what I'm calling a major disinflationary cycle because that's what we had today. We went to 9% and turned down to 6%. So we're, we're coming down, right? Once that happens, never, not once, ever did the disinflation cycle stop because of a reinflation month. And never, not once, ever did the disinflation cycle stop before 12 months, every single disinflation cycle of that nature, of the nature we're seeing right now, lasted at least 12 months and took at least 350 basis points off the inflation rate. We are just seven months into this cycle with just 240 basis points off the inflation rate. So if this disinflation cycle were to end today, it would be unprecedented. It would be the shortest and smallest disinflation cycle ever in U.S. economic history. I doubt that's going to happen because here's another fun fact. The shortest one, that 12-month one, that was during the great financial crisis. That wasn't disinflation driven by the Fed, which is what we're getting today. That was disinflation driven by a massive economic collapse of epic proportions. So you back that one out and actually the average disinflation cycle is about two and a half to three years long. And the amount of disinflation that happens, about a thousand basis points, 10 full percentage points. That's your average disinflation cycle. Two to three years, 10 points off the inflation rate. We are seven months in, 240 basis points off. So history says we got a lot longer to go, not to mention we haven't yet had one month of CPI reinflation. We've gone seven months without one month of CPI reinflation. Every single disinflationary cycle of the past 10 years had at least one month of, of reinflation, at least one month of reinflation. 
as we said before, six months for every six months on average, you get one month of reinflation. We're seven months in. We're overdue for a month of reinflation. So we're probably going to get reinflation. Maybe February, maybe March, maybe April. I don't know, but we're probably going to get it. And guess what? <laughs> it's not going to mess the disinflation cycle. It's not going to end the disinflation cycle. It's not going to reverse course. It's not going to be inflation's heating up again, as all these silly bears are, are saying all over the internet. No, this is just what happens. Disinflation <laughs> comes down, reinflates a little bit, comes down, reinflates a little bit, comes down, reinflates a little bit. What matters is the trend. The trend is down to the right on inflation. And it's going to continue to be down to the right on inflation because that's what inflation cycles do. They are long and lasting. When inflation gets going, it gets going and it's tough to turn around. When disinflation gets going, it gets going and it's tough mm. to turn around the other way. That's just what history says. No disinflation cycle has been shorter than 12 months, excluding 08. None of them were shorter than two years. And they shave about a thousand basis points off of off of inflation. So we're seven months in, 240 basis points down. This thing's just getting started, folks. This thing's just getting started. And guess <laughs> what? The, the, the Fed is doing a perfect job. A lot of people want to blame the Fed and shame the Fed. They've done a pretty darn good job considering what they were dealt. The cards they were dealt was COVID <laughs> pandemic, shut down supply chains everywhere. Then the U.S. government and governments across the globe just pumped in a bunch of money to keep the economy going. So they were dealt with the biggest imbalance between supply and demand, economic supply and demand in the history of probably ever, ever, like beyond American history, probably ever, ever. There was no supply and there was so much demand. They were dealt the worst hand in the history of playing poker here. And yet they're managing to still bring inflation down without bringing the economy into a recession. It's fantastic. I, I think Powell is he's a little puppet master here, engineering a perfect landing for the economy. He's bringing inflation down, but he's not crashing the economy. People are saying, go 50, go 50, really bring in inflation. But he knows it's going to hurt the economy, so he's not going to do that. Then other people are like, pause, 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 you're killing us. But he's not going to do that because that's not going to help fight inflation. So now they did their 50, they did their jumbo heights. Now they're coming into a 25, slow and steady. They're going to ride it down, ride inflation down, keep the economy alive. Everything they've done to date is going to allow them in 2023 to have a very slow and steady policy stance. I think they probably go 25 in March, maybe another 25, and then I think it's pause time. And then we just kind of chill from there. Inflation comes down, economy restabilized, stocks rally. So I think everyone's freaking out about this little February move. Uh fact of the matter is we soared in January. We were due for a pullback. We pulled back the 200-day moving average. We pulled back to that October 2022 uh, trend line, the support line there, and we bounced off both of them. We bounced off the 200-day. We bounced off the support line. So from where I'm looking, I see a market that just is still in a technical uptrend and just had a short-term pullback forming a local bottom and is now ready to rally significantly in March. And I think stocks will rally significantly in March because of where we got to in February in terms of expectations. Where we got to in February is the market got really worried about reinflation and really worried about the Fed to the point where the market actually priced out rate cuts for 2024. So if you, or 2023, if you look at the futures market, futures pricing was a few rate cuts in, in January. That's what the, the pricing was. And now it's come down to basically zero rate cuts for 2023. Guess the last time Guess when the last time was that we were at zero rate cuts in the futures market for 2023, October 2022. That's when stocks bottomed because uh, Fed expectations were so hawkish. They were at peak hawkishness. When Fed expectations go to peak hawkishness, guess what? 
there's very little room for the Fed to surprise on the hawkish side, but a <laughs> lot of room for them to surprise the dovish side. So that's yeah. where we are going into March. Peak hawkish expectations. Everyone's worried about reinflation. Yet in the month of February, commodity prices have collapsed. Bloomberg's commodity index is down. I last I checked, it was down about six and a half percent in the month of February to new cycle lows, the lowest level since before uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. I um, mean, you look at leading um, kind of indices of prices, you know, the ISM surveys, the the uh, manufacturing, the services surveys, the the Fed district surveys. They all show prices decelerating, price pressures decelerating. You look at inflation expectations; they fell in February. So all the leading data here suggests that inflation. Disinflation reaccelerated in February. So that means we're going into March. Everyone's worried about reinflation. We're at peak hawkish expectations. Yet the February CPI, PPI, and PC reports that come out in March are probably going to be a lot better than the January ones that came out in February. So we're going to get those reinflation concerns. They're going to get eased by revamp disinflation in February. That's going to create peak hawkish expectations. Those are going to drift upward. Fed's only going to go 25, and then boom, this is a situation where in stocks rally significantly in March. So yes, I am very bullish on stocks going into March and very bullish on stock in 2023. What we saw in February, natural pullback in a healthy uptrend by the dip. I think we're going higher from here. My two cents. My <laughs> impassioned two cents. <laughs> All right. Uh, zoning back into our uh, sector specific analysis. One of the stocks we talk about a lot on this podcast, Fisker, soared yesterday after the company reported uh, fourth quarter yep. earnings. You love the stock. We know that. Is it getting ready for a big time breakout? Love those guys. Love those guys at Fisker. Um, yeah. So the electric vehicle story of 2023 is going to be one about affordability, 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 affordability. We live in a world where inflation is still 6%. Probably going down to five, four, three percent, but it's still six percent right now. It'll still be five percent probably in a month. It'll still be three percent, you know, by the end of this year. So that's still above two percent. That's still above normal inflation. People are worried about inflation. You're seeing all the layoffs. You're seeing people get worried about their jobs. The, the conference board's um, consumer confidence report just came out in February, and it showed that consumer confidence about future jobs, job prospects, significantly deteriorated in February. About their own earnings prospects significantly deteriorated in February. Their own spending expectations significantly deteriorated in February. So you're seeing a consumer that is worried now. A worried consumer doesn't splurge on a Tesla Model S maxed out to the Supremo. Uh, a concerned consumer buys the, the cheapo Fisker that when you include that tax credit at the base level can get you below 30K. That's what a concerned consumer buys. And we're seeing that. Reservations for Fisker rose in the fourth quarter of 2022. They rose by, I think it was, I wrote the numbers down here somewhere because they analyzed it. It rose 3,000 quarter over quarter, 65,000 reservations. So, you know, when you look at some of the other uh, EV companies, they didn't report a rise in reservations in the fourth quarter. Fisker did. So you're seeing demand burgeoning. Now, point number two, you're seeing production ramp almost seamlessly. Because of the company's platform sharing manufacturing model. Remember, the company doesn't make their own cars. They're outsourcing different parts of the manufacturing to a bunch of different companies. A lot of those outsourced companies are very established large companies that know a thing or two about making stuff. 
So this platform sharing business model leverages the expertise of other firms in making stuff. And that's allowing for them to almost beat supply chain issues in this EV production ramp up. So they're still guiding for 42,400 vehicles produced in 2023. Other firms are cutting the 2023 delivery and production guides, not Fisker. Boom. Big win for the platform sharing business model. And then third, perhaps the most important thing here is the company. And this is one of the reasons we loved the company. Life teaches its most important lessons through mistakes. You, you, you can learn all you want by reading a book. You, you can learn all you want by studying theory and studying history. But you're not going to really learn something, probably not going to really learn something. So you go out into the real world, do it, and do it the wrong way. Then you made a mistake. You learn how to do it. Or you learn what was the wrong way. You learn from that. And then when you go back up and you get on your feet again, you're ready to do it the right way. That's Fisker. All these other companies, save Tesla, you know, Lucid, Rivian, Canoe, Arrival, all these other new EV companies, they're doing this for the first time. This is their first crack at the whip. They haven't learned the, le the valuable lesson of a mistake. Fisker has. Fisker was Tesla before Tesla. And they screwed up badly and they went bankrupt. Now they're back. They know, and it's the same people pretty much. They know what not to do and they know how to stay alive and they know how to grow. And that's and one of the most important things and that is that they know how to grow efficiently. You can't spend like a drunken sailor if you want to be around for a long time. So you look at their 2023 spending guide and they're guiding for about, I think it was... Just $570 million in spending this year. That's a big number, but the street was at $825 million. So they're spending $350 million less this year than what the street was guiding for. That's crazy. Street was looking at $825. They're coming in at $570. They're basically saying, Wall Street, we don't have to spend that much at all compared to what you think we have to spend in order to grow this business, in order to produce 42,400 cars. They maintain that production guide, yet guided for way lower on expenses. They even said that they might be EBITDA positive this year. Wall Street was looking for an EBITDA loss of $400 million. They're saying they might be EBITDA positive. Gross margins, 10%. Wall Street was at 8%. So when I look at Fisker's report, demand, burgeoning, great, check. Production, ramping, no hiccups. Great, check. Company, hardly spending as much as everybody thought they were. Profitable soon? Really? Check. <laughs> check, check, check. Stock's depressed. It's it's going to soar. I think this is my favorite EV stock for 2023. I've said that before on this podcast. I continue to say it now. This is a company that is ready to go. Boom, boom, boom. I think Fisker stock, 20 bucks is the next stop. That's my call. Okay. Uh, what about Lucid? They went the opposite way of Fisker. Do we right. still like that one? Yeah. So yeah, Lucid is, it's, that, that's the problem. Again, the, the things that are benefiting Fisker are actually hurting Lucid. We have a concerned consumer. Concerned consumers don't splurge on the $100,000 plus Lucid. They mm -hmm. buy the $30,000, you know, Fisker Ocean or the $37,500 Fisker Ocean or whatever, whatever pricing you get based on the model you get. But they don't buy the $100,000 Lucid. So that's hurting demand. So Lucid actually saw reservations drop in this quarter. 
second drop in a row, but a bigger drop than the previous quarter. And they're not, so you could say, okay, the reservation drop is because they're actually delivering some of those vehicles. Yes, that's true. But wrote down the numbers here because they reported a while ago. Yeah, so Lucid dropped reservations by 6,000, delivered 4,000 vehicles, which means they netted out minus two on, on net demand. That's how I'm looking at it. So if reservations drop six, they delivered four, there's still a gap of minus two there. That's not a good demand trend. So that's worrisome. Then they guided to, what, I think just 12,000 vehicles produced next year from 7,000 this year. They're not even going to double production. What? At one point in time, this company was guiding for 50,000 deliveries in 2023. Now they're saying they're going to do 12. 50 to 12. They're, something's not going right there. They're, they're not producing cars in the way they need to be producing cars. Their demand trends are weak. They have $4.9 billion in the balance sheet. It's a lot of cash. And they're backed by the Saudis. So what do you do with Lucid stock? Well, I don't think Lucid stock is going to be a major alpha generator from here, but I wouldn't sell it either. The company is clearly struggling, struggling operationally, but they have the best tech in the industry. And they're backed by the deepest pockets on the planet that if the stock gets cheap enough, they will buy the company out. They will buy the stock out. So what do you do with Lucid stock? I say you stick with it. I don't think you sell it. I don't think you buy more here. I think you stick with it. If you only stick with it, if you don't own it, stay on the sidelines, wait for those operational numbers to get better. But you have a massive safety net here with the Saudis, a huge safety net. If this stock gets cheap enough, goes down far enough, they will buy the company out. Easy. So that's what, that's, that's how I feel about losing stock. I mean, my net rating would be a hold on the stock. Don't rush in and buy it, but don't sell it. You got a big safety net, but they're clearly hitting some massive operational hiccups. That Fisker is not hitting. And the Fisker results actually made Lucid's results look relatively worse. Because if this were an EV industry-wide you know, issue, then okay, that's one thing. But when your competitor is knocking out of the ballpark and you're not, it's a bad look. So Lucid stock for me, stronghold right here. And uh, no need to get too aggressive on it. Okay. Uh, last one I want to talk about is Open Door. Uh, they reported earnings last week too, and the stock also went the opposite direction as Fisker. It went down. Uh, the stock is still up about 70% from its lows, but as we all know, it's down about 90% from its highs. Uh, do you see anything in Open Door's report that would give you confidence that the stock is ready to rally back to $10, $10 or $20? Yeah, I, I, actually, I actually like the Open Door print quite a bit because here's the thing about Open Door is the numbers are horrendous. They're gross. They're awful. <laughs> but the numbers are horrendous, gross, and awful because the company bought a lot of homes before that housing market reset. So what Open Door mm -hmm. has done is they've now split their book or their inventory into the old book and the new book. The old book are homes the company acquired before the, the housing market started to decline. Before prices peaked. So prices peaked in June and they've come down. So they're defining their old book as homes acquired in the second quarter of 2022 and before. That's the old book. The new book are homes acquired in the third quarter and fourth quarter of 2022 and into the first quarter of 2023 and going forward. The old book has been running the business for the past two quarters. Because they can't, they didn't acquire a lot of homes in the third and fourth quarter. The old book's about 90% of the business or has been about 90% of the business. Here's the problem with the old book. The old book, of course, they acquired all those homes at a huge premium. They're selling them at a loss. The average gross margin on the old book is minus 5%. 
the average contribution margin is minus 10%. Okay. So they are losing the contribution margins are most important here. They're losing 10% contribution margins on those old book homes. Terrible. But the new book, they're making 10% contribution margins on. So the new book, what they're selling through right now, the new book, average gross margins are 13%. Average contribution margins are about 10%. So old books running at minus 10%. New books running at 10 plus 10%. Old book, at the end of the fourth quarter, they'd already sold through 66% of that old book. By the end of this quarter, they'll, their target is to have sold through 85% of the old book, which means that sometime in the second quarter of 2023, that old book will be entirely off their books. That inventory will be entirely offloaded. So assuming the housing market does stabilize here, which I am a believer that it will, and that's a big assumption, I understand. That is my belief. Based on the data I'm looking at, I think the housing market is going to stabilize because I don't think the Fed's going to be as aggressive as people think and mortgage rates are going to come down. There's a lot of sideline demand and lower mortgage rates are going to energize that sideline demand and bring you know, energy and momentum back into the housing market. So I'm of the belief the housing market is going to stabilize. Operating under that assumption, then Open Door is going to go into the second quarter of 2023, into the summer, a really hot selling season with its entire old book cleared. And the entire business will be run on the new book, which is selling at 10% contribution margins and not 10 not minus 10% contribution margins. So revenue growth should meaningfully reaccelerate into the summer and into the back half of the year. Gross margins should meaningfully improve. Contribution margins should meaningfully improve. EBITDA margins should pop back into the black and the company should get cash flow positive again. That's the transition that the company needs to make in order for the stock to work. I see a light at the end of this very dark tunnel for Open Door. That's what that quarter showed me. There is a light. The old book is getting cleared. I was really happy to see the new book performing so well. That tells me, okay, this is a company that really did just get screwed by a really bad housing market. But once the effects of that bad housing market are in the rearview mirror, and they should be fully washed through by the second quarter of 2023, then this is a company that's going to get back to business, back to growing at a healthy clip again, at a profitable clip again, as the housing market stabilizes and the new book becomes the entire business. So I really liked what I saw in Open Doors numbers, and I really think that stock can and will retake $10 in 2023. I know that's a big jump from where it is today, <coughs> but I think that's entirely possible. Okay. Uh, well, that covers all our topics, but we do have a bunch of fan questions this week, starting off with Bryce Vinson. What are your thoughts on Super Micro as a picks and shovels play on AI, or is it better to stick with their customers, NVIDIA and Microsoft? Yeah, I think Super Micro is all right. Smack dab all right. That's, that's how I, I would, I would uh, describe them. I think NVIDIA and Microsoft are far better bets on, on AI. I don't think Super Micro has, has massive competitive advantages established. Uh, the the business is not really scalable. It's it's not a really high margin business. Um, I like Nvidia far more. I like Microsoft far more. So, uh, do I think the stock can do well and, and well do well? Yes. Do I think it's going to outperform Microsoft or Nvidia? No, no. So, um, I think there are much better AI stocks to buy than Supermicro at the current moment. All right. Next question from Lawrence Olivier Lamontagne. Uh, what are your conclusions on Matterport after its recent earnings report? Um, yeah, I, I like Matterport. The thing is, is that the pretty much all their top line metrics are slowing. So uh, subscriber growth is slowing. Subscriber revenue growth is slowing. 
overall revenue growth is slowing. Spaces under management growth is slowing. Um, the whole top line story is, is deteriorating. And I think that's a macro thing. They have a lot of exposure to the real estate industry, remember. Real estate industry obviously has not been doing very well. Um, so they have exposure to that. And then I also think that there's a lot of small and medium-sized businesses that are Matterport customers. And you're seeing a lot of SMB spending pull back amid the uncertain macroeconomic backdrop. So when I look at Matterport, I see a company that has great technology and great long-term potential that is currently undergoing a slowdown in growth because of macroeconomic uncertainty. So the way to look at Matterport stock is, okay, once the macros do improve, which I believe they will improve in 2023 and 2024, and the company's growth trajectory should reaccelerate higher and the stock should start to move higher as well. So I like the long-term prospects on Matterport, always have. And when you talk about the short-term kind of 12-month outlook on the stock, I think there is a good chance for a pretty big turnaround as the macros improve and real estate companies start spending more on Matterport software, SMB starts spending more on Matterport software and revenue growth rates reaccelerate into the second half of 2023. All right. Next question from Helen Gottlieb. Luke, what do you think about deep sea mining to help fuel the EV revolution? What do you mm -hmm. think about TMC, the metals company? Yeah, so I that this is a very hairy topic. Um, I think deep sea <laughs> mining is very interesting and there is a lot of potential in the industry. But there's a lot of pushback against it from environmentalists because basically what you do is you send in these rigs to go and mine. So long story short, for viewers who don't know, there's a bunch of electric vehicle battery material, specifically lithium, at the bottom of the ocean um, because of various geological developments over the past several um, uh, thousand years. Uh, there's a lot of lithium at the bottom of the ocean and they're stuck in these little nodules. And so what the deep sea mining idea is, okay, let's build these basically underwater miners that can go really deep into the ocean, to the ocean floor and mine these deep sea nodules, bring them back up to the surface. And then we extract the lithium and usable EV battery metal parts and then use that to create EV batteries. Um, and that sounds terrific and wonderful, right? It allows us to have a whole new supply of what are in short supply, these EV batteries, um, EV battery metals, sorry. But when you go and mine the bottom of the ocean floor, well, we don't really know what happens. I mean, that, that, that could cause a lot of different, it's just, it's the butterfly effect, right? It, the ocean's a habitat. It's home to a lot of animals. Um, a lot of those animals are necessary for our own uh, existence. Uh, when you go and mine the bottom of their floor, when you tear up the, the floor of their home, um, some changes will happen. What changes will happen? A lot of studies are done to analyze what could happen, but nobody really knows. And so deep sea mining is a very tricky thing. You're, you're going to mine the bottom of the ocean to get battery metals to accelerate the electric vehicle revolution and actually more broadly accelerate the clean energy transition to help save the planet. But at the same time, you're kind of destroying the planet by going deep into the ocean and causing unknown collateral damage to, to the ocean ecosystem. Where do I land on this? I'm not smart enough. I'm not well researched enough in this space to know, okay, what's going to happen. What I think should happen is we should test it. We should do a little bit of mining and see what are the side effects. We need to move very slowly with this industry. If we do move at all, we need to move very slowly with it. Um, 
the thing that gets me nervous about a company like the metals company um, is that when you look at the packs that are signed against deep sea mining, a lot of automakers are part of those packs. So you have, like, I think I did the analysis, maybe six or seven of the top 10 automakers in the planet have publicly come out and said they're against deep sea mining. So who the heck are you going to sell these battery metals to? <laughs> right? I mean, if, if all these automakers, if everybody that needs them is saying we don't support it, and you go and do it, and you have all these EV battery metals, who, who are your buyers? I, I don't know. I don't know. So long story short, I can't really deliver a, a very certain opinion here. What I can say is it's an industry fraught with risks. And while the upside potential is, is enormous, I don't think the investment opportunity is very clear at this point for me to say, all right, let's go buy a TMC. All right, let's, let's get bullish on this stuff. I, I don't, there's not enough visibility. It's a very hazy outlook. And we need to move slowly with the industry before we can kind of really ascertain what steps we should take over the next five to 10 years there. All right. Next question from Alex Andrade. Any thoughts on Celsius before their next earnings? On the Nielsen sales data prints, they've been crushing their industry volumes up over 122%. I saw this stock was pulling back under $90 due to macro technicals, and I added to my position. Are there any potential revenue numbers you'd like to guide for 2023? After the big Pepsi partnership, I'd like to see over $1 billion. Yeah, so Celsius is technically breaking down. So if you're a short-term technical guy, technical trader, um, you're out of Celsius because Celsius has rolled over. It, it's it's lost all of its, its 50-day, its 100-day, its 200-day. It's it's not looking good from a technical perspective. It looks like it wasn't a stage two breakout, formed a stage three top, and is now maybe going into a stage four decline. So if you're a short-term technical trader, you're not in Celsius right now. But I agree with you. Long-term fundamentals here look great. Every data point I'm looking at says Celsius is dominating. There's a lot of competition and a lot of others kind of smaller, nicher brands out there that are trying to steal market share. But Celsius has that big Pepsi distribution partnership. And I think that will shine through in the 2023 guide. So if I look at what the street's looking for um, in 2023 right now, pulling up the model, um, the street's looking for revenues of at least a billion. One point oh oh seven billion dollars for 2023 they need to smash that guy technicals only matter if the fundamentals don't provide a surprise so the technicals are bad on celsius if celsius comes in with a guide of a billion dollars or less the stock is not going to work if celsius comes in with the guide of 1.1 billion 1.2 billion and they got up up in that range then screw these technicals. This stock's going to bounce hard right back into a breakout channel and go to 130, 140, 150. That's how I look at Celsius stock right now. So yeah, it's really going to depend on these earnings. Are they going to come in with a $1.1 billion guide or a billion dollar guide? Maybe only $100 million, $100 million difference, but the street really cares. And considering the technical breakdown, you know, it, it looks risky into earnings if you're a short-term trader. But Long term, I like the stock. I think that five, 10 years is a fabulous holding. I do think they have enough momentum and, and brand power to completely change the energy drink industry. I think Monster's done. I think Red Bull's done. This is, it's Celsius's world now. And they're just trying to not get dominated and eaten out, but they will get absolutely destroyed by them. <laughs> uh, next question from Alex Hershaft. What's the latest on Ava Technologies? 
Um, yeah, so Ava, LiDAR, LiDAR producer, right? LiDAR maker. Uh, I, I love the LiDAR industry right now. So Luminar just announced that massive deal with Mercedes. So Luminar had a deal with Mercedes. They were testing it out on a few models. Mercedes apparently liked it. And they launched a huge multi-billion dollar contract extension. The details of the contract extension are not clear yet. They'll probably make clear this afternoon. Luminar reports earnings. We'll probably get a, a deep look into that. So that'll be interesting. And actually by the time this podcast releases, we'll maybe know some more details about it. But where I stand right now, I don't know much. All I know is that Mercedes has signed a massive contract extension with Luminar, multi-billion dollar extension, according to um, inside sources. And it looks like, so Volkswagen signed a similar deal with InnoViz. InnoViz is going to be providing LiDAR to all autonomous Volkswagen vehicles starting in 2025 into 2033. That's a $4 billion partnership. You kind of connect the dots. It looks like Mercedes signed a similar partnership with Luminar. So Luminar will provide LiDAR to all Mercedes vehicles starting in 2025, probably into 2030, 2031, 2032, 2033. And it's probably a three, $4 billion deal. That's what it's looking like. So LiDAR is clearly picking up steam. Volkswagen's got Innoviz. Mercedes has, um, has Luminar. And then, you know, Volvo's testing out Luminar LiDAR. Uh, BMW's testing out Innoviz LiDAR. And Ava is kind of in this world, but a smaller, more under the radar player. But I, I think the technology, the, the FCMW uh, technology is the best technology. So Luminar is using time of flight. Um, uh, Innoviz is using the MEMS, so the mirrors, and uh, Ava is using FCMW. Based on my industry contacts and my understanding of the technology, FCMW is, is the best technology. It's just more expensive. So Ava's more of a long-term play. The reason Luminar and Innoviz are winning the contracts right now is because they're the cost leaders. And right now, cost is very important. But I see Ava as the technology leader, the performance leader. That's going to eventually figure out how to bring costs down. And so I think FCMW, I think Ava's LiDAR, can and will be a major winner in this race. There's no real near-term developments, again, because they're not a cost leader. But the long-term fundamentals of the technology are very, very, very promising. And so with the stock where it is, I think it's got a negative enterprise value right now. Okay, let me, let me check that. I believe it has a negative enterprise value. And if so, obviously, I mean, that's it. <laughs> There's a reason you got you to gotta buy the stock. So for those who know, negative enterprise value basically means that the company has more cash on the balance sheet than its current market cap. And uh, that was true, but it's not true anymore. So the, the, <laughs> stock has had, the stock has had a big bump, $390 million market cap, $350 million in cash on the balance sheet. So enterprise value of just $50 million. So a $50 million enterprise value. The market's valuing the, the operations of the business at $50 million. That's that's far too cheap. So I think I think in a buck eighty, Ava stock is is a pretty strong speculative buy. Not for your lunch money again, but um, fifty million EV for that is 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 really really discounted. All right, and our last question from Chat GPT: How does the regulatory landscape affect investments in AI, and what developments should investors be watching for? What's the name of this user? ChatGPT. Chad or Chat? Chat. No, this is from ChatGPT. Okay. Um, oh, it's, okay. Uh, the regulatory landscape with respect to AI. Mm -hmm. And what? What? Uh, how well, does the regulatory well, landscape affect investments in AI? And what developments should investors be watching for? Yeah, don't worry about that right now. Don't okay. worry about it. 
because the government moves slowly. They are just now starting to figure out how to regulate cryptos. Just mm-hmm. now. Crypto started in, in 2012. They got really mainstream in 2017. And they're just now, and they, they had another massive boom in 2020. And they're just now figuring out how to regulate it. Not even really. I mean, they're just, they're basically now just starting to open the door to regulation. We're 10 years, 11 years into the industry, six, seven years past this real mainstream boom. If there, there will be AI, AI regulation, but not before 2025 and probably not until 2030, if not 2035. So I am not factoring in regulation into my investment thesis for AI stocks today. All right. Well, great analysis for our listeners and HGI investors. As always, Luke, any last words before we wrap? Um, this is a fun episode, man. I had a lot of, I had a lot of fun on this one. Really? I did. I, uh, AI is, it's such a cool topic. And I, I think people are the, the tragedy of AI yet also the opportunity is it's timing mm. that AI is, is coming, is emerging at a time when investors are very skeptical because they were fooled by a lot of tech trends over the past two years. E-commerce mm. was going to rewrite the world and, you know, it ended up being, okay, well, it's going to continue growing, but it's not going to, uh, you know, go to 100% immediately. Uh, digital advertising has slowed. Um, the metaverse thing, what happened to that? Um, so there have been a lot of tech trends that got accelerated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Everybody thought they're going to take over the world, and it turns out, oh, they're not going to take over the world. They're just going to grow slow and steady. Because of that, people are very skeptical of, of tech mega trends. And that's the tragedy of AI, that it's emerging, coming to market, really becoming its thing uh, at a time when everyone's skeptical of things like AI, things like tech mega trends. But that doesn't mean it's not. This is the real one, folks. This, this is the one that changes everything. AI is the internet all over again. If you had a time machine, you could go back in time and just any period, one point, and buy stocks, you would go back to the beginning of the internet and you would buy internet stocks. You would buy Amazon. You would buy Alphabet. You would buy Meta, although that's 2012. It's a little bit later. You would buy Adobe. You would buy Intuit. These are, you would buy Microsoft. These are stocks you would buy. You don't need a time machine because AI is going to do all of that now. So in 20, 25 years, Somebody will have a podcast like this, probably not on YouTube, but somewhere else. And <laughs> they'll say, man, if I had a time machine, I'd love to go back to 2023 and buy AI stocks. Like that would just, I mean, God, I'd be a billionaire right now. Well, we're here. You don't need a time machine. We're here. So I think that that's the opportunity we have before us. And then again, the tragedy of it is the timing. A lot of people are skeptical of tech megatrends because they were fooled by a lot of the COVID tech megatrends. This is not a COVID tech megatrend. This was not hyped up by lockdowns. This is not something we started using because we were all quarantined. No, this is something that emerged because people figured out it is a way to do things infinitely more efficiently than how we're currently doing them, just like the internet. So if there's one thing you're going to actually get hyped up about, you're going to actually believe the hype wave about, it should be AI. And it's the, those are the stocks you need to be buying hand over fist right now 
in the bear market, AI stocks. They're going to be the leaders of the next bull market, which in my opinion is emerging right now. So those are my final two cents and I'll let you lead us out, Aaron. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening. If you're interested in Luke's AI Super Summit event, we've left a link in the description where you can sign up for exclusive access to this premier event. As always, if you have questions or comments for Luke, leave them in the comment section. We love to hear any feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover. And as always, to see if we can answer any of your burning questions. Please don't forget to like and subscribe, and we'll hopefully see you at the AI Super Summit. And if not, we will see you all right back here next week. Until then, bye all.